What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, and we've got the crew, Jake Dello. What's up? Gabby Magnuson. Hey. Kiara Mitchell. Hello. And Pete McKenzie. Good day. So, few quick hits. One, this is weird. They're all offbeat, but very important to me. So, random thing. North Korea apprehended a South Korean fisherman who had like wandered illegally into um, North Korean waters and uh, executed him and set him on fire. And that sounds oh, fucking medieval. Shit. And That's not where I thought that was going. <laughs> nope, definitely not where I saw those going. A little bit out of left field. But there is some speculation about like, why would they do this? And it's particularly brutal. And it's true that North Korea is not exactly on great terms with South Korea right now. But this is all actually about COVID, just to be clear. North Korea's, you could call it a public policy choice, but like the way that they're choosing to um, insulate themselves from the pandemic, this is how they're choosing to deal with it. They don't want the risk of infection. So um, they lit the dude up and it's pretty tragic and brutal, but... It's the North Korean version of pandemic response. So what are you going to do? I don't mean to sound naive, but of all the ways to respond to a pandemic, setting a light a fisherman that is a citizen of your neighbor. Well, they're not on good terms. That's that's. It's. I hate to laugh. I hate to laugh. It doesn't. I should. I really should have thought that. I'm. I'm trying not to be funny about this, but like, there's a. It's so ridiculous that it, like, the ridiculousness of it seems funny. I mean, obviously, it's like a very sad thing, but this is this is what happens when you've got like post-totalitarian autocracy implementing pandemic response. You know, second issue: Klaus Schwab, who is the founder of the World Economic Forum, which is like the jet setters, plutocratic kind of uh, public policy. Um, it's not even a think tank, like initiative Davos. That's where World Economic Forum meets. And so, you know, transnational plutocrats from every walk of, of society all over the world convene in Davos to exchange business cards and strike up deals and talk about what are they doing to, like, repair their reputations as you know, social entrepreneurs or whatever, while they make their billions of dollars. And obviously, World Economic Forum in Davos is like out of step with the times. It's like a neoliberal institution from a neoliberal era. And Klaus Schwab gave this um, interview in German, which obviously I cannot read, but the summaries of what I'm reading have him quoted as saying that neoliberalism is dead. And that's quite a statement because it's the ultimate neoliberal institution, the billionaires club. And so the weird thing about the, on the one hand, it sounds like, OK, he understands what's going on in the world. And like maybe you would see World Economic Forum get rebranded or something. On the other hand, he also suggests that we instead of just having like raw capitalism or disembedded capitalism, we should have social capital and government capital and humanitarian capital. And basically what he's doing is like he wants to, to bring market solutions to society but the way he's doing it is by like saying neoliberalism is dead. And this reminds me of that classic movie, Usual Suspects, where fucking Kevin Spacey yeah. 
says the greatest trick <laughs> the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist and it's like poof just like that neoliberalism becomes it disappears and becomes all powerful like that's what this struck me as and i don't know if i'm just being a fucking conspiracy theorist or what but it neoliberalism's not dead it's still here we're living with it i don't know Third quick hit is from uh, a dude, Rob Cameron, who wrote in a foreign policy. He just published this piece, incredible piece, totally off the normal beat in a good way, in like a necessary way. And it's called literally the case for black American self-defense. And it's positioning the argument about armed resistance, but with, you know, defensive doctrine, defensive intentions as it like as a posture against the sort of prevailing argument that invokes like Martin Luther King type pacifism for black people. Um, and he goes through a, a longer a longer history and an alternative tradition that embraces violence, not like terrorist violence, but self-defense violence for for black Americans. But also like this speaks to a larger a larger issue in general that progressives have not dealt with well. I'm an advocate of, of nonviolent policies and nonviolent resistance um, whenever possible, but I'm definitely not a pacifist. And there's a strand of progressive thinking that is pacifist. And there's large camp of anti-imperialists on the left. Some of them are coming from a very pacifist place and invoke that sort of Martin Luther King tradition. But there were lots of people who there were lots of groups who were anti-imperialist and actively violent or actively uh, supporting self-defense. Right. Like the back, like the Black Panther Party. And they existed yeah. at the same time as Martin Luther King. One of the things that bugs me about, like, the political science research that says, like, nonviolent resistance works. I mean, I'm an advocate of it. Right. But it only in America anyway, it only worked for civil rights in a context where you also had this opposing pressure from black militant groups from the radical left. And so like you couldn't right. in a causal yeah. sense, you were never able to observe nonviolent protest working independently of this threat of armed black, basically militias. Right. This is an important thing that has been like whitewashed out of history is that like there's organized violence. That's part of the narrative, too. And when you drop it out, it means that like you're trying to delegitimate the ability for minority populations to like protect themselves. And so you're you're leaving minority populations vulnerable to state violence. And so this is something this is a, a way of thinking. It deserves like uh, a lot more seriousness or nuance, but it needs to not be forgotten because otherwise you have the most vulnerable groups in society being subject to state violence with no recourse, depending on institutions and the rule of law and norms that are like literally breaking down before our eyes, in addition to the fact that they've been rigged for centuries anyways uh, in favor of white people. So like there's something to be said about self-defense in an organized way as a way of like establishing a kind of balance of power with the state. You can have a balance of power. This gets a little bit international relations -y, but like you can have a balance of power, but still build institutions, still build, you know, interdependent relationships and cultivate peaceful norms and all of that. You can do all of those like liberal things, you know, peaceful transi transitions of power and electoral processes, all of that good democratic stuff 
but it can happen in a context where there is an underlying balance of power that says, look, if you start getting oppressive, you are going to be the reason why there's mass violence, right? And the balance of power is, uh, you know, insurance for survival in a sense. And there is no balance of power in that way domestically in America for minority populations, for blacks in particular. And so like the liberal notion of gun control, yeah. mm. in principle, I agree with gun control. Um, mostly I don't want white boys getting guns because they're the ones who shoot up high schools. But yeah. I, while I get the principle of gun control, I think black people should have all the guns in society. They need to protect themselves. They're the ones who are getting fucking exterminated. Oh, exactly. So, yeah, exactly. If anyone has a Second Amendment leg to stand on, it's the black community in the United States. Yeah. For self-defense-wise. Yeah. Very interesting. Anyways, I shout out to Rob because this piece is, it's not the usual foreign policy piece, but it does intersect with progressive foreign policy debates and like it activates this tradition that, I mean, I don't know, like there's a lot of existential risk in forgetting this tradition of, of armed resistance, too. And just to be clear, I'm not preaching violence. OK, but self-defense is a different thing. So shout out to Rob. Spoken like a true martial artist. I know. How can a martial artist be like genuinely pacifist? <laughs> I can't. I just can't. Let's do Prediction Market, where we get fans to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. For Prediction Market this week, we're sort of casting a long shadow into the future. So our questions are a bit far-reaching, but I thought I'd ask them anyway. Question one, will we see any diplomatic ties be solidified between Saudi Arabia and Israel before 2023, following the recent spate of Israeli-Arab peace negotiations? So this is interesting because Saudi Arabia has always pegged their... Israel policy to the Palestinian justice issue or to having a Palestinian state. And Israel is not showing any sign of, you know, favorably resolving its feud with with Palestine feud, but accommodating a state for Palestine like that does not appear to be in the cards. And so for Saudi Arabia to even be remotely kind of flirting with the possibility of moving forward with peaceful relations with Israel while the Palestinian thing is just un as it always has been suggests that uh, it's moving away from Palestinian solidarity like to the extent that that's the case yeah. but like I wouldn't be so surprised it's a Gulf monarchy Mohammed bin Salman the butcher that kills the Washington Post yeah. journalist these guys are in Trump's pocket Trump is in their pocket um, and all of this, all this Gulf normalization of ties stuff that's happening, it's all just, it's performative for the Trump administration. Like the Trump administration is seeking wins in foreign policy. And so it's having its yeah, Gulf yeah, lackeys yeah. do this shit. It's not clear to me that any of this is meaningful in the long term, or even that it's like substantively real. I'm actually concerned about Saudi Arabia warming ties with Israel while the Palestinian issue goes unresolved. Like, I, I, I kind of think that's not a good thing. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. It just seems like the Palestinians are losing another ally. That's the last thing they need to lose. Yeah, yeah. Or another ally is sort of stabbing them in the back. It just seems I'm on, I'm on the same page with that one, Zan. Yeah. Question two. 
Will we see any response from OPEC member states following the formation of the East Mediterranean Gas Forum in Egypt? So this is weird. Very weird. East Mediterranean Gas Forum. It's basically OPEC for gas in the mm. Med, countries that would be very desirable to visit kind of thing. And it excludes Turkey, but it's, as my understanding was that like Turkey was one of the reasons for forming this gas cartel. Yes. So Turkey yes. is trying to extract gas that transcends into, or it goes past territorial boundaries for countries like Greece and Cyprus. So like there's a basically a territorial dispute because of natural resource extraction interests. And so this gas uh, cartel forms, but it forms minus the country that is like at the heart of these disputes. And so like, is this a gang? Is it an anti-Turkey gang, like a coalition? Or is it just, you know, like a supplier's cartel to like rig prices better or what? I don't know. I, I, I'm so like, I haven't sorted myself on what this exactly is. For the sake of the prediction, I would say that we're not going to see OPEC make a statement about this, but I do think that they're probably going to be like watching it carefully because it's it's the Mediterranean gas analog of OPEC. Yeah, it just seems to me when I was researching this question, it's and the countries that are a part of it, I would read them out, but they're in the story. They're all the underdog countries, mm. and it seems. They're the countries that you wouldn't really expect to join the global conglomerate. So yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, we'll keep an eye. Usually for our question three, I ask a question that's a bit out of the blue. Um, I've decided to be quite nice this week and do it about China. All right. Since Van Van often tells me he wants you know, stuff he, he studies. So I thought, okay, we'll do a China <laughs> question. We'll do a China question. Question three. Will China make any formal declaration on their ownership of the Pamir mountain range in Tajikistan before February next year? This is like notionally about China. It seems to be about fucking Tajikistan, but okay, I'll take it. So it's in the, it's in the question. China's in the question. To yeah. be fair, in the eyes of China, Tajikistan is probably part of China. Yes. So in fact, in fact, that's at the heart of the question here. China has mm. said recently that this Pamir mountain range, it's it borders on Xinjiang, where a genocide is being actively yeah. perpetrated. So like the territory adjacent to the genocide in the concentration camps, the Chinese claim that that is their territory and they claim it always has been. The fact that they're even making statements along these lines in a context where they're waging a genocide next door and in a context where they've also like overreached on Hong Kong, they're making noise about Taiwan. This is very disconcerting, right? This is the latest indicator, the fucking Sino-Indian border crisis. It is the latest indication and like as a pattern, it really looks like China is becoming capital R revisionist. Yeah. I was talking to Dan Nexon mm -hmm. recently and like we were talking about actually the like how much does the security dilemma apply to US China relations and what like it can only apply you put aside the US cuz US intentions are all over the place but assuming the US is normal the security dilemma like reasoning only applies to the China case if China is a status quo state but like very explicitly China has revisionist territorial goals it does not accept existing international borders the question is are they willing to use force to achieve those revisionist goals at that point 
they would be unquestionably revisionist, which has all kinds of implications that we've talked about before for policy and like how you deal with them. It's not pleasant. And I think the prevailing view among like smart sinologists has been that historically, or at least since the 1970s, since Deng Xiaoping, China has been a defensive kind of status quo state in the security dilemma sense. Mm. And so to the extent that China mm. has been involved in in conflicts or disputes since 1978-79, it's been from it's been disputes that you could characterize as a security dilemma and therefore the prescriptions for like the best policy are usually ones that involve restraint, accommodation, compromise, carrots over sticks, right? Negotiation, negotiated settlements, um, that kind of thing. And it's not clear that that's the case anymore. Um, the jury is out, right? We need more evidence. But like this whole Tajikistan debate is one more data point that makes China look gnarly aggressive. It's super concerning. And it's doubly concerning because it's happening in a context where it's like there's no cop on the beat anymore. Like the the cop on the beat exactly. turns out to be a corrupt cop and yeah, a fucking yeah. bad guy so like this is a, yeah. this is a huge it's very fucking scary well yeah i i'm with you on that one van um this might show my naivety as a non-china hand and are there any neighbors that china has currently that they're not having a territorial dispute with mongolia arguably north korea <laughs> really <don't>, yeah. <laughs> okay Okay, that's that's a good too. I mean, the the uh, great data point for comparison that justifies the historically the security dilemma frame is that prior to 1979 or 1978, China had 23 territorial disputes. Taylor Fravel cites this a lot. 23 territorial disputes is a fuckload. You gotta 20, look at you gotta look in the mirror 20. and be like, the, maybe the problem is you, dude. But over the past decades, they've narrowed those disputes down to six. And six is a lot of territorial disputes. We've talked about this before, but like that's way less than 23. And so that reduction makes it look like China is interested in sort of like peaceable resolution of conflicts, uh, therefore status quo. But it's dealing with these remaining six in a pretty like hardcore way and so that's the scary part i think like so what we think about chinese intentions determines a lot about how we proceed into the future here six six border disputes out of 14 countries which they border so i mean i guess it's not bad if we're, if, if that's the bar <laughs> and there's prediction market this week time for sale of twitter where we curate the best and worst of twitter so that you don't have to all right for stay off twitter my first one is from Kelsey Atherton, he's he does a podcast called The Loopcast every once in a while. It's pretty good. Uh, he's a journalist, writer, and uh, he he cultivates this thing called the Fellow Travelers blog, which is like a leftist foreign policy blog. And he just says on Twitter, the weirdest part of my beat is watching the continued development of expensive and very fast missiles proceed as normal while everything else in the news is crumbling, despair, and hardship. I could not think of a better yeah. statement of what's going on. Why is it that the fucking, the, the build-out of the most advanced weaponry on Earth is the only thing in the world that's going normal, and everything else is fucked? That makes everything else doubly fucked, that it's the fuck. <laughs> 
like military acquisitions are fine. <laughs> Democracy, not yeah, so much. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Shut Is up. there any explanation to it? Like, if you had to come up with a theory, it's all corrupt. There's this guy David Cleon who wrote this piece that called America like the sick man of North America, and it was the idea that American foreign policy was basically corrupted down to the core. It was basically America was open for business if you're a kleptocrat or if you're corrupt, America for sale. There is no national interest here except money, except corruption. And so if that is the core of American of American public policy and American foreign policy in particular, then of course you're going to get military acquisitions and research and development and militarist foreign policy, like all that stuff will show great continuity because it's the defense industrial congressional complex, because it's, you know, Gulf allies buying our foreign policy and buying our endless wars. But like that whole foreign policy continuity thing does not indicate that public policy or politics itself is functioning normally just because that part is functioning normally, that was the aggressive spear, the the aggressive part of, you know, like liberal empire. And it's the only part that has right. been preserved. The democratic part of it has been like left in the in the background or left for dead. And the reason for that is the same corruption that makes the militarism stuff go forward with great continuity. The master yeah. explanation for this is actually the corrosion of democracy by kleptocracy by corruption. So I think there's something to that thesis. Second tweet, speaking of kleptocracy, Matt Dust, Bernie Sanders foreign policy advisor, not that he's a kleptocrat, but uh, you know, his, his <laughs> boss talks. It's <laughs> <So, laughs> a big goal. Yeah, yeah. So the White House spokesperson said that, you know, 200,000 deaths from COVID, you should keep it in perspective. It's not a big deal. Um, it's not something that like you should be blaming Trump for because it could be way worse. It could be 2 million deaths, right? So Matt Duss says on top of that, they're literally congratulating themselves for coming in lower than the Cambodian genocide. Yep. yep. And it's like, that's where we are, man. And Yeah. And people are not freaking out. There's not like panic in the streets necessarily, but like that just underscores the quotidian nature, the like work a day, let's go about our lives nature of living in desperate times, of living in authoritarianism. You read memoirs from fucking Nazi Germany. Most people were living normalish lives within a context mm -hmm. of just like a totally dystopian hellscape. And yeah, so yeah. just because you'd be surprised at how easily you could survive in a dictatorship. You know, and this is a sign of the times. It's like, oh, we opened up Der Spiegel yeah, and another million a, Jews died. The Atlantic had a good piece on this recently. We'll, we'll try and link it in show notes about the the dearth of empathy at the moment. And it made the very good point that the majority of people who have died from COVID in the United States are elderly and elderly are yeah. relatively frequently segmented off from society. Mm. And the remainder have been overwhelmingly black. And so you can see why it becomes so easy for Americans to slip to this experience of, on the one hand, living through the greatest mass casualty event of the of modern American history, 
and one of the like four greatest mass casualty events of the entirety of American history. And yet on the other hand, feel like everything is, if not normal, at least semi-okay. It's that weird kind of schizophrenic experience, which you can only understand if you look at the existing fractures in American society. Yeah. I mean, the, the reality is you can't live through a disaster world by treating it as a disaster world. Otherwise, you'd have to go be a revolutionary like right now. Like you, you can't face up to reality fully when reality is this bad. Yeah, definitely. It's right. really weird. Because, like, from my perspective, obviously not being an American, in case you didn't know, um, <laughs> everything, like, the internet coming out of the United States, all the, the stream of internet content, it's all relatively the same. And it's almost like everyone's continuing just to go about business in the midst of this hellscape. And, and it actually goes to your point, like, you'll be surprised how long one can live under a dictatorship before they realize that in the dystopia they used to read about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that fun note, I guess I can jump into my <laughs> tweets of the week. Yep. They're not much better, I gotta say. So the first one I've got was pitched by our beautiful teammate, Pete. This thread is written up by Ashley Taylor, who is a Canadian-American documentary filmmaker, writer, activist, and musician. So she tweets, Today, I've been thinking of 2020 less as the year of unexpected shocks and catastrophes, more as the year predictions came true. For decades, concerned people have studied and proposed intelligent ways to prevent or mitigate them. So in her thread, Taylor refers to the myth of Cassandra, who in Greek mythology could only ever utter true prophecies, but was cursed so that no matter how obviously right she was, no one would ever believe her. And I think Taylor's right, like absolutely right to use this me metaphor. For example, a pandemic in the form of a zoonotic illness that crosses species barriers. Experts have been warning of this exact scenario for years and have suggested many ways to avert them, but we just keep ignoring them, right? And like, I think the most obvious one would be like climate change. We're having like fires and flooding and storms one after the other. And if you followed any bit of like climate news, you would know how predictable these outcomes were. So she does make a great point when she says, none of these warnings had particularly long odds. We are basically where the data and probabilities said we'd be if we didn't act. It's uh, it's pretty, but you know, my whole like warnings about North Korea and the nuclear crisis and like that whole beat I was on for 2017 and 2018, like largely got ignored in favor of optimism biases and good news and like ignoring history, ignoring reason. And then of course I've been right about everything ever basically on North Korea. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not the only one, but like, the, you know, the experts have been, <laughs> the experts on North Korea have been overwhelmingly right about everything all along, but it doesn't, it has, it has never mattered. It, whether we were right or not, it never factored into decision-making. It never really factored into public opinion. And the result is like the outcomes are always worse than they could have been had we made better choices. And that little yeah. reality on North Korea replicates across like every fucking issue of public policy, including pandemic response, pandemic management. You can't have stopped the the virus from occurring in the first place. It happened in fucking China. Like we can't control what goes on in there, but we could have controlled the spread better through better public policy. We could be not living with this the same way that we are now through better public policy. 
and particularly the U. I mean, you, the U.S. is like the unique case here too, more so than everyone else in the world because of how disastrously they've managed the response. And those are a function of choices. You knew this was possible. People have been warning about this for years. You deinstitutionalized all your pandemic response capabilities because again, yeah. bad policy choices. And it's like, you can guard yourself against most alternative futures that are disastrous. Not, not everything, like a comet hits the earth, what can you do? But most alternative futures, you can, be, you can guard against through preparation and through good choice. Hedge against those uncertain futures, you know? Um, but we've failed to do that. So shout out to Astra. I was going to ask, how unique is like the U.S. in terms of taking advice from experts and having it turned into like this Cassandra complex, right? Like, uh, like in your opinion, at least, in, you know, literally any other case. Well, now that seems to be very much the case, right? Like yeah. experts ring alarm bells. Nobody listens. You, you know what? You know who listens? Fucking Vox.com. You know, like it's it's the <laughs> yeah. people the people who voted for like Elizabeth Warren and read the Atlantic, like they listen, yeah. but like fucking nobody else. Like how many what percent of the population is reading the Atlantic and Vox? Like two percent, you know? People with journalism degrees from fucking Columbia. I'm feeling I'm feeling attacked today, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean this is oh, shit. I'm I'm exercising some of my own demons here possibly. But like it's frustrating to me that it's such a like disastrously small small percentage of the population but like before yeah, totally. the obama era was the era of technocrats you know like it was governance by elitism you know experts were the authorities and authority was everything pre-2017 now it's like a totally different world and on that fun note i'm gonna go on to my next tweet of the week which comes from Yuna Wong. And this one genuinely actually is kind of fun. I'm kind of hoping like we can kind of do this. But um, so Yuna Wong, I've mentioned on the pod before, uh, the tweet I've got from her for this week is promoting the first war game offered by RAND. So that's the American nonprofit global policy think tank. And so this game, Hegemony, is open to the public in the form of a commercially available board game where basically you can be your own armchair strategist. And apparently this is the version that was supported by the 20. 18 national defense strategy by the way um, we aren't this isn't the sponsorship or anything van's just you know a war game expert and i just happen to be a nerd who's like been frothing over war games like since the rest of the kids in class so i thought i brought it up yeah no it's a good it's a good sort of public service announcement actually like obviously not a hot take but <laughs> this uh, so the rand corporation has released the materials that you need to run uh, a war game that they call hegemony and it's it's basically a force planning exercise but it's packaged as a war game and it lets you choose among the different trade-offs uh, across readiness of your troops the size of your military the modernization of your military so like how how advanced capabilities you you should have and then your force posture like where you're distributed across the world or across the regions and you have to choose among these things given finite resource levels right and so your choices reflect what your strategy is or what you're saying your strategy should be i do a version of this without the rand corporation's like uh materials in the the strategy and wargaming class that i teach that uh gabby took 
And this is great material to use, which is why it's like a public service announcement. I would just say as like a parenthetical one, I have not looked at these materials yet, so I can't know if I'm co-signing <laughs> it. But two, the 2018 fucking defense strategy was shambolic. It's not good. <laughs> it's militarist. Like it doesn't, en <laughs> it doesn't engage with any of alternative ideas about how you would conduct military campaigns. And then like, because you change your way of war, that then changes the capabilities that you need or the force posture you need. The fact that this game might have been used as an input into that strategy, I don't know. That actually makes me more skeptical rather than embracing. <laughs> but I'm going to check it out. It's, it's, I'm sure if you're into wargaming, like, uh, it's free material, so it's worth checking out. Sounds actually, like Dungeons and Dragons for generals. <laughs> I mean... Sounds pretty fun. That, yeah, that's what defense strategy is. It's Dungeons and Dragons for real life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is why it's so cool. Really quickly. <laughs> actually, Van, so it's not free. It's actually $250, if that makes a difference. Ooh. So it's that's actually... Yeah. You can... All Rand products are required legally to be free but oh. only digital versions so you can download everything for free online oh. but they have a price tag if you want to order hard copies oh so like so there's download free. links okay. on that website yeah I'm, I'm looking at the player guide now and it is looking pretty cool i'm not gonna lie right. yeah so that's my tweets for the week there let's jump into armchair analysis where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it Armchair for this week is a piece in foreign affairs called, oh, sorry, correction, a piece in foreign policy <laughs> called the United States Needs a New Strategic Mindset by Zachary Tyson Brown, a security fellow at the Truman National Security Project. The premise of the piece is that the United States, as he writes, hasn't had a coherent strategic vision for a decade, uh, for a generation. The absence of an overarching strategic concept has produced little but short-sighted moves that have left the country less secure, less prosperous, and less relevant. And it builds off of that by calling for the introduction of infinite game-esque strategy, pushing to build a competition in which the point is not to win or lose, but in the words of James Cass, to simply keep playing. Until now, the US hasn't done that. It's been tilting at unipolar windmills or spending trillions on great power competition, which leads to kind of military industrial graft in the aim of winning. But that misses the point. You don't want to win the game. You want to continue the game on favorable terms to you. And that mismatch of understanding of what the game is all about has led to America to lose the unipolar moment and to waste those trillions of dollars. And so Tyson Brown really pushes for that infinite game. He cites Everett Carl Dolman, a professor of military studies at the U.S. Air Force's Commanded Staff College, who wrote that strategy seeks not the culmination of events, but a favorable continuation of events. That strategists aim to increase their options by manipulating the structure of the competition itself, dictating the terms by which the game is played. And so the question then arises how we might create an infinite game. And this is where I think the piece is, is less satisfying but it's worth noting anyway what it is that they that he su suggests he suggests first that u.s leaders need to decide what the country stands for in the 21st century 
that vociferous daily condemnations of China aren't nearly enough, that people need to know not only what the United States is against, but what it's for. Mm. And then having decided that, it needs to choose the role it wants to play in a world where it's no longer the hegemon. It's always going to be, as he writes, a hemispheric power with a large market and global reach and will always exert powerful influence. But it can't expect other leaders, uh, other nations to follow its lead by default. And then finally, Tyson Brown recommends that America envision new mechanisms to buttress the liberal order that America built after World War II to change the structure of the game so that it can continue on those favorable terms. And I think those are all three very good policy prescriptions. But I, I mean, I, I found the value of the piece was in in reconceptualizing American strategy from kind of tit-for-tat tactics, winning individual fights to that kind of strategy of perpetuating in the infinite game. But I mean, Ben, what, what did you think about the piece? So I have all kinds of conflicting feelings about this. I agree with the thrust of it and his critique, I think, is dead on. So the notion that America hasn't had a strategy for a generation or it hasn't had a, a good strategy for a generation, I think is true. Like the, the choices that America makes add up to semi-incoherent, reactive, in conclusion, bad strategy. That's a problem and we've for all the ink that has been spilt on strategy and grand strategy since the fucking unipolar moment dawned at the end of the cold war we haven't we don't have much to show for it and it certainly hasn't seemed to benefit america's foreign policy choices very much and i think he gets at some of the diagnosis correctly like the notion that states should be playing an infinite game is true the conflation of infinite game with good strategy is is very problematic and misleading though a strategy is a theory of success it's your wager with the reasoning for that wager right and to have a good strategy by definition you need to have specific objectives it's okay for your infinite game to be in the at the level of like broad visions or big meta goals what what is your interest or like what are you trying what role are you trying to play in the world like at that meta level that's where the infinite game is relevant you you don't want to hijack you, I'm, I'm afraid people will read this piece and think like oh well if we're just trying to play for continuity and to tread water in international relations indefinitely then maybe we don't need to have concrete objectives maybe we don't need to have a sense of plausible actions to produce the results we want in the world that would be anti-strategic anti-rational mm. that would be very problematic mm. the way the way the infinite game was like invoked i think it could easily be misread that way which is like my my reservation and there is something in this piece though that's like very it's worth reading i really liked it in the main the one thing that to note that's important that's missing from a lot of strategy convos is that good strategy, among other things, it protects, it serves a referent narrative, some frame that tells you what's going on here, who you are, what you're all about. And because of that, a good strategy often will be reducible to a bumper sticker concept. In fact, if you cannot reduce your strategy to like a, an elevator pitch or a simple statement of concept like containment, then there's a good chance that you don't have a good strategy, right? 
it's not that strategy has to be a bumper sticker. It's that if you don't have a bumper sticker of your strategy, then you may not be able to answer the question, what's going on here or what's this all about? What's the wager that you're making with your collection of choices in the world? And so when we see a bumper sticker like containment, there's a coherence that makes that bumper sticker possible. When you don't have the bumper sticker, it's more likely that you don't have internal coherence in your choices. And when you don't have internal coherence, you by definition have bad strategy. Internal coherence is one of the criterion, uh, criteria of good strategy. And good strategy tends to be more successful, right? Good strategies can produce bad outcomes. That's possible. But you know, on, on balance, when you're choosing your fate in the world to the extent that you can, you want to choose good strategy. You want to make rational choices. So you want to make choices in line with the criteria of good strategy, which includes being internally coherent. And so uh, the piece intersects with some of that knowledge and best practices. And then in other respects, it kind of like uh, deviates around it, diverts around it. So I just wanted to like flag that. Do not treat this piece as gospel, but if you read this piece in the context of other stuff written about strategy, it's very useful. And the critique of that the piece makes is like my favorite part of it. Um, and the, I think I share with him this bottom line that like we are strategically listless right now. I wouldn't frame it in terms of an infinite game, though. I would frame it in terms of not having a referent narrative. What are we all about? Like, what's going on here? Without that, how can you array your actions or orchestrate actions on behalf of some, some like, vision, you know? So a lot of food for thought here. All right, time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. Okay, so for Ask Me Anything this week, we have three questions. I'm just trying to interpret the first one as it's from Twitter. So it's from Jamie Withorn, who's asking, if you're emailing someone you haven't met, who has both a PhD and is a professor, and they aren't a student, your student, do you greet them as a as doctor or as professor? So there's not... There's not a reliable answer to this because it comes down, it, people with PhDs in particular are very, they have different hangups about their PhD. So I know some people who have PhDs who are at like uh, Brookings and a couple of different think tanks. They, they put on their Twitter handle that they're a, a PhD. You know, people like me as long as you're not insulting me, I don't care what you call me, you know? And then there's people who are like everything in between. And so like, it's very idiosyncratic, but if you want to err on the side of caution or like to make sure you're respectful, it always makes sense to address uh, as like professor or doctor. And then generally professor is above doctor. Although like I would question that, but that's how a lot of people treat it. Is it like, almost necessary if you were going to be cautious about it like if you honestly couldn't make your mind up if like a simple hello or dear or not dear I suppose or like hi is enough or do you is it more polite to definitely just go hi like just shoot a shot and just be like hi professor or hi doctor well what is the argument I mean because you're you guys are coming at this from the opposite yeah. perspective <laughs> what is the reason yeah. to resist calling somebody professor or doctor I 
I don't know. I'm, I'm trying. I, I don't know. <laughs> Why not? Like I do doctor for the first email. If I don't, if I'm not their students and I don't know what they prefer and how they sign their email is mm. how I how will respond to them in future. Mm. It's not like a resistance to uh, like calling them as such. It's more kind of like, you don't want to accidentally insult them by not using their doctorate, for example, or, you know, you get it kind of wrong. That's the only concern I think I have. Yeah, I mean, so the the conservative thing is to say professor if they're a professor, doctor if they're a PhD okay. but not a professor, um, but also like it kind of depends on the person. <laughs> yeah, okay, I got it. If I ever get my PhD, you guys better hope that you're calling me doctor every time you see me. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the second question is from an intern at Vox. Are you writing less these days? I've seen you publish a bunch in the past few weeks, but it's not as much as 2018. This is a little bit stocky. Uh, I'm not criticizing, but like, <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> like, is this my mom monitoring my productivity? <laughs> so what a great student for your mom, right? Like. I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, Vox intern slash mom. Um, so <laughs> I, uh, I I feel like this actually almost like hits a nerve. Like I feel like I'm not writing as much as I was, but what I'm, I am writing every day and I'm plugging away at two different books at the same time. Hopefully in a year or two, there's going to be this like, oh my God, Van's having a DMX year, like multiple hits at once. But in the meantime, it's like, I'm not doing a lot of journal articles because I'm focused on books and I'm trying not to do op-eds, even though I get pulled into doing them once in a while, or like, I just can't help myself. But like the payoff of writing op-eds, if you have a bigger project on the table is not great or like there's a trade-off there with your time i'm trying to write more focused instead of writing everything everywhere all the time um so that may be why it looks like i'm writing less but i also feel more insecure compared to the insane productivity i had in 2017 and 2018 because i was getting when you write an op-ed you publish it and you get immediate feedback like immediate dopamine hits Cause it's like people are tweeting about it. You're getting like other media invites and quotes to do things. And like people are talking about it. So you get that like very near term satisfaction, but it's also, it's like crack. It only lasts for a little bit of time. Then you're fiending for more. And so you write another, and you write another, and you write another before you know it, you're just writing all the time looking for that fucking next fix. And books, like, you know, I think I've talked about this before, they're on a longer time scale, much longer. And so the payoff is much bigger. The high is much better. But uh, I don't want to make this, like, too druggy. But the book is just, like, so much more satisfying. <laughs> you're making good life choices when you're doing a book. Whereas the op-ed, it's like you're a junkie. This is sort of, like, where my mind is about this. And yet I still do the op-eds anyway because, like, I just... I could quit at any time. And to me, like I actually writing the op-eds, like I almost wish I had a column somewhere again, because writing regularly in that short form kind of juices my long-term writing, the book writing. I can, I can allow myself to delay the gratification of getting the book because it takes so long to write and I can stay with it and keep plugging away at it. If I'm getting that dopamine hit 
from the shorter term stuff. So it's like as long as I can keep getting hand, getting my hands on that crack rock, I can keep making the good life choices. I don't know if my metaphor went off the rails, but like that's sort of where I'm thinking about all this. I just I just like to let people know I do have the power of like editing and, and keeping audio. So I now have audio of my professor saying I just got to keep my eye on that crack. Let's not make that an audiogram. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, so the third question this week is from Glenn Allen. October surprise. Is that is it a thing more likely to be China or North Korea? What's your best guess? So October surprise, presumably they're talking about the surprise like foreign policy gambit or something that uh, a president pulls or that happens to a president right before election or re-election since the election's in November. And so there's a lot of talk of October surprise. There's a real push right now that South Korea is making to get Trump to declare an end to the Korean War. I support the outcome, but like having Trump do it is basically throwing away an opportunity. Like in my mind, that's actually making a joke of peace. So like I kind of wish South Korea would just fucking wait. But um, there's a possibility that like something happens with China, who knows what. I don't actually know. I'm people talk about October surprise every election. I don't know if it's really a thing or not. I feel like the October surprise if if one happens next month, it's not going to be like North Korea or China pulling a stunt. It's going to be Trump pulling a stunt that involves North Korea or China. That's where my money would be. It's like Trump's October surprise. All right, gang, that's going to do it. buymeacoffee.com/undiplomatic. Uh, for money things. Send us money. Um, and <laughs> if you want to rate us on iTunes or wherever you're listening, please Jesus do. Christ. We could use, we could use uh, all the good stuff that you want to send our way, whether it's well wishes or money. Uh, all right. Peace. Peace.